Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. A school shooting in eastern Idaho pulls the debate about arming teachers out of the hypothetical and into sharp focus. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Rebecca Boone of the Associated Press and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press joined me to discuss the legislature's slow approach to signee die. But first, on Thursday, a sixth grade student opened fire at Rigby Middle School, injuring two classmates and a custodian. It was the first school shooting in Idaho in more than 20 years. Joining me to discuss the incident and the ongoing policy discussions around guns in schools are Devin Bodkin and Kevin Richard of Idaho Education News. Devin, I wanted to start with you. You were there yesterday in Rigby. Can you walk us through what happened? Yeah, according to police, um, a sixth grade girl at the school, a student at Rigby Middle School, uh, pulled a, a pistol out of her backpack and um, fired shots both in the school and outside of the school. She injured, we know, two students and one uh, custodian. So do we have any updates on the conditions of those uh, people who were injured yesterday? We do. Um, we know that as of yesterday, according to um, a, a spokesman there at Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center in Idaho Falls, that the custodian has been discharged. He was treated and released yesterday. The two students uh, were stable. Uh, they left the school in stable condition. All of them did. And um, that they were going to stay the night at the hospital, but we don't know uh, exactly when they will uh, be discharged. Yeah. I, I, and I wanted to ask about um, what happened after the student the, um, began firing shots? She was disarmed by a teacher. Do we know anything about that? Was the teacher armed when she managed to um, disarm the student? That we don't know. Um, the investigators are still being careful about what they release at this point. We do know that according to Sheriff Steve Anderson there in Jefferson County, the teacher disarmed and dis detained the student until police came uh, to the scene. Um, we also know that, again, there were shots fired inside and outside of the school. How everything transpired during the, during the shooting is obviously still an investigation. Um, but we do know that uh, one of those injuries occurred outside of the building. When you went to the scene, this is obviously every parent's worst nightmare, every teacher's worst nightmare. How were the parents and students and school staff when you spoke to them? How were they holding up? So this, the shooting took place around 9.08 a.m., according to the sheriff. I arrived at the school uh, around 10.30 a.m. Students at that point had been moved from the middle school to Rigby High School, which is next door. So there was a long line of vehicles 
uh, in front of the middle school and uh, going to the high school where families and parents could could get their kids. Um, I parked and had a, I walked up that line, um, glancing into vehicles as I as I went, and you could really see uh, just some of the, the shock, the uncertainty, the fear in parents' eyes as um, you know news was still coming out uh, about what had happened. I think there was a lot of uncertainty. We saw some parents running uh, to the school. Uh, one one father crossed the police line and tried to get into the middle school, and a, an officer had to redirect him. So a lot of um, you know what you expect to see when when you go to a scene like that. We saw um, parents getting their kids and and leaving uh, the school as as quickly as they could. Some of them, uh, many of them, were holding hands, embracing. Uh, parents in the parking lot hugging. Um, so yeah, pretty pretty hor- um, horrific scene there yesterday at the school. We're just glad that no one else was hurt and that nobody died. Um, Kevin, I wanted to bring you into the conversation. Um, this comes after years of debate in the legislature about whether or not teachers and staff should have the ability, more teachers and staff should have the ability to have concealed weapons in schools to potentially disarm a shooter in a nightmare situation like this. Well, let's first walk through the policies that exist right now and then let's talk about what we've seen transpire this legislative session. So right now, school boards, school districts, charter schools, they have the prerogative of allowing school employees to carry weapons uh, on campus, to carry firearms. It's a local decision. You do have a handful of schools around the state that have done this. Generally, those are schools and and districts that are in rural areas where the response time to an active shooter situation is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a long response time. Um, That's a policy that's been in place for quite some time. What we've seen unfold this legislative session, we've had two competing pieces of legislation, I guess you could say. Uh, One from Representative Chad Christensen, who has been pushing for for this kind of legislation for several years. What he wants is to allow any school employee with an enhanced concealed weapons permit to to be able to carry on school grounds with or without the blessing or the uh, endorsement Uh, from the school board or from the school administration. This passed the House earlier this session. It passed uh, in early March. It was the first time that one of these bills had come up for a vote on the House floor. It was assigned to the Senate State Affairs Committee. There's another bill in Senate State Affairs. This one was written by the School Boards Association and the uh, School Administrators Association at the urging of Senator Patty Anlodge, the chair of Senate State Affairs. And what it does, it, it builds on that existing policy that I talked about. That, that allows local districts and, and local boards to decide about uh, employees carrying. And it layers in a lot of an emphasis on training for those employees and coordination with law enforcement. Both of those bills are in St- Senate State Affairs right now and you know, had a chance to talk to uh, Senator Lodge today about the status of those bills. And, and what did Chairman Lodge say? Well, she had two main points that she uh, that she had to say. First of all, neither bill is coming forward at this point. Uh, she was adamant that uh, her committee's closed right now. The session may not be over, as we know, but 
she's not having any more committee hearings, and these bills are not coming forward. Uh, her, her preference was uh, the, the bill that the school boards and the administrators were working on, but there were concerns that were raised in committee. Senator Lodge's big takeaway on this, as I talked to her, and I talked to her at some length on Friday, is she believes that the key, that the linchpin here is training, that school employees, school staff have to be trained to handle these situations. And she emphasized that from what she could gather from the situation in Rigby, this was a case where the training worked. You know, you can't prepare for a situation like this, but you can train for it, you can, you know, and she feels like what uh, what happened in Rigby is proof positive that training is the key to resolving these issues. Because, you know, right now you've got folks at loggerheads about the, the guns in school issue. Well, and, and let's talk about that proposal in in the realm of what happened on Thursday in Rigby. If you know, there, there's no good potential outcome if you have teachers and staff who are armed because you would have had a sixth grade girl in the sights of somebody's weapon. But at the same time, if there hadn't been somebody who was able to disarm her, if there had been a lag in law enforcement response time, and as you mentioned, in a lot of rural communities, it can be a very long time before people show up, she could have also the, the suspect could have also potentially injured or even killed a lot more people. So there's, there's no good outcome here. There is no good outcome. And as I was talking to Senator Lodge, some of her concerns are, well, what, what happens if you have armed teachers or if you have uh, you know, SROs even in, in that situation? Does it create uh, scenarios where uh, you could have a shooting, uh, you could have the situation escalate? You know, yeah, I think from a public policy perspective too, there, there's no good, easy solution here because you have folks all over the spectrum on this. You have lawmakers like Chad Christensen, you have Second Amendment advocates on that side who, who want unfettered access, who want unfettered Second Amendment rights extended to all school employees, no questions asked. You have parents, and Senator Lodge says she's heard from thousands of them over the past few months, who, who don't want any more guns in school. Uh, hard stop on any of these kind of proposals. You have the law enforcement community, their preference would be you know, having more SROs in the schools, having more trained officers in the schools. And then you have you know, groups like the School Boards Association and the administrators who really want to retain the local control that we have in place. There is no easy public policy needle you can thread here. We heard the response from Senator Lodge. What are you hearing or seeing from other lawmakers on this issue? Well, Representative Christensen was very quick to go to, to Facebook on Thursday saying that there is still time in this legislative session. He does want to see his bill move forward. He's trying to get his supporters to put pressure on Senator Lodge to, to move this bill, and you know, he's on unapologetic about that. He believes that this is the, the path that he wants to see move forward and you know, he's, he's coming out right now, he says, because it's late in the legislative session, there isn't much time to move. You know, th there are a lot of strong emotions within that legislature right now about this issue and you know, technically, yes, the, the session is still going on, but when you have chairman of the committee saying, we're done for the session, 
uh, they're probably done for the session. All right, Kevin Richard, Idaho Education News, Devin Bodkin, Idaho Education News, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. On Wednesday, the legislature recessed until May 12th, guaranteeing that this session will be the longest in Idaho's history. Before that recess, lawmakers saw a flurry of activity this week, including passing a property tax bill, the last of the public schools budgets, and the long-debated budget for Idaho's four-year higher education institutions. Once again, much of that debate centered on social justice issues and critical race theory. When this budget is presented here and it adjusts it by $2.5 million, but we acknowledge that there's far more than $2.5 million in our higher education system being dedicated towards teaching, well not teaching, promoting and advocating for critical race theory and social justice promotion in our universities. We would now be violating the, own law, the, the very law that we passed just a few days ago in here. That we would be appropriating money to fund exactly what we said public money could not be used for. If you think that any more than $2.5 million is being used in our universities to promote critical race theory, you must vote against this budget. I am a proud Boise State graduate. I'm just going to lay my bias out there for everyone to hear. I went there on the GI Bill. That place provided opportunities I had never seen before in my life. It changed my life. As I used to tell my undergraduate students, there are four things you need to know about critical race theory. Number one, it is a theory for which there is no universally accepted idea or definition, even by its proponents. It's not a thing, it's not an object, it's an idea. Number two, it tries to explain our social situation and to explain the present through a more inclusive and representative version of the past. If you can break it down to a single thing, number three, this is it. Critical race theory and critical race theorists do believe this single thing, that America's social institutions, our legislatures, our courts, our schools, you name it. They do have, to varying extents, they are embedded to varying extents with some bias towards people of color. I don't think that's controversial. When you look at outcomes, virtually every law and policy that we maintain has a disparate and adverse impact on people of color. Housing, health, education, wealth, income. People of, people of color always come out on the losing end. Always. And I don't think it's unfair to acknowledge it. So I think just to make sure that the universities understand that this is something we would like to see addressed and that they would like to take it seriously, as serious as some of us have taken it, that we can at least send this back for the $20 million decrease. I'd appreciate your no vote on this budget. Thank you. We have more of that debate on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel, as well as other notable debates from this session. You'll find the link to our YouTube page at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. And while you're there, hit subscribe. 
joining me today to discuss the news-filled last week we have had is Rebecca Boone of the Associated Press and Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press. Betsy, the last week has been filled with action at the legislative session after so many starts and stops, including a new property tax proposal that was passed by both the House and the Senate less than 48 hours after it was first introduced. Absolutely, and, and property tax has been a, a top priority for many legislators the entire session. There have been tons of bills proposed. The vast majority of them never were introduced, never got hearings. And on the very final three-day week, maybe, of this legislative session, the House Majority Leader, Mike Moyle, introduced an extremely complex 26-page bill that does a whole bunch of different things. And without really any time for extensive hearings or analysis, it passed both houses and is now on the governor's desk. And we'll have more specifics on this bill on future shows, and I know that there have been some great write-ups, um, you know, and, and you've explained what this does on your blog. But I want to talk about the process of this happening. This isn't the first time that a huge proposal has gone through the legislature this session with very, very little public notice in these late weeks of an already rec record-breakingly long session. Uh, how? It, it, it's not a good look for transparency, Betsy. Well, <laughs> the, the legislature commonly in its final rush at the end of the session has much more hastily scheduled meetings and things like that. But I believe this year's session has pushed that beyond anything I have ever seen before. We had um, the House Ways and Means Committee, for example, met twice two days straight, Monday and Tuesday, including evening meetings. There were meetings being held on 15 minutes notice or even on zero notice that included introducing new bills that then never got a hearing at all. Um, there was a controversial bill that was introduced on Tuesday that had a hearing on Wednesday that was never announced before it happened. And there were people who wanted to testify on that bill who waited in the hallways for more than three hours wondering if or when there might be a hearing. And then when the, the hearing was held, it went very quickly. All the testimony was against it and boom, it passed. And that was the marijuana advertising and promotion bill. So we saw all kinds of stuff going on um, at the Capitol this week that was really the opposite of public notice, inclusion, the typical access to government that we have really always treasured in Idaho, especially with regard to the Idaho legislature. You mentioned the bill that was proposed this week that would ban advertising for, um, for Schedule One controlled substances, so basically marijuana. It would stop the pot shops from advertising in Idaho if they're located in Washington or, or Idaho. And there were a lot of big questions about that, especially you know concerning the First Amendment. And that got rushed through with no real notice. Uh, are you hearing anything about whether that is going to get a hearing in the House? I have not heard, and all these things are up in the air. I, I actually wouldn't have been surprised if that bill had then immediately after it passed the Senate been scheduled for a House hearing and come to the House floor, and it did not. So some bills got that treatment, some didn't. There's a bill to change all city elections from odd-numbered years to even-numbered years. It's already passed the House uh, once by amending a Senate bill that had nothing to do with that. Um, the Senate killed that. The House amended another bill into doing that again, and they passed it again. That hasn't come up in, yet in the Senate. And interestingly, there was a different bill. It was a pretty obscure bill um, that came up in the Senate on that final night. And there was a lot of debate against it. 
and Senator Michelle Stennett stood up and said, the Senate told the body across the rotunda no once. The answer is still no, <laughs> and they killed the bill. So I don't know what that says about the fate of this other. Uh, I think we are hearing a lot of that this session, especially <laughs> as it drags on longer and longer. Uh, Rebecca, I wanna bring you into the conversation. You and I have both done um, reporting in different ways on the harassment that uh, the 19-year-old intern Jane Doe faced after she reported an alleged sexual assault from former representative Aaron Von Ellender. Um, I, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit on last week's show. I wanna ask you though, how much of a dampening effect that might have on uh, the harassment specifically that Jane Doe faced, how much of a dampening effect that might have on future complaints that people may be considering reporting in the legislature? Well, we already know that um, uh, many women choose not to report. I mean, that's clear from Bureau of Justice statistics through the Department of Justice. Um, and we know that prosecutions, when women do report, are you know not very frequently super successful. So we already have two really big hurdles. But um, what we found in those, uh, looking at the Bureau of Justice statistics, is that a huge majority of women who choose not to report say that they're worried about retaliation or harassment as their number one reason for choosing not to report. And certainly what happened to Jane Doe seems to reinforce that fear for people. Um, I spoke with experts from rain.org um, and they said that um, this is something that women watch. And when women report um, sexual assault and then are surrounded by support publicly, then they tend to see more people coming forward. Um, and that, you know, and of course they run the National Sexual Assault Hotline, so they have real, um, they have access to a lot of numbers and stuff, because they can just monitor those calls. And they say that when people report and then are sort of publicly faced with harassment and that, um, you know, becomes really apparent, then um, that can make other people choose not to. So. Um, it's unfortunate, but this could have a real impact moving forward, um, particularly, I think, for women in our state who, who watched it all go down. And, and let's talk about what went down. There were some pretty serious things, including identifying the woman publicly um, in a number of different avenues uh, on, on blogs and a letter that was released by Von Ellinger's former attorney. I mean, and, and also, harassing her after immediately after her testimony last week. Right, so um, this 19-year-old intern reported that she was sexually assaulted um, by Representative Aaron Von Ellinger. He has denied those claims. He says that they had contact, sexual contact, but that it was entirely consensual. Uh, the police department is investigating. There have been no charges filed as of the last time I, that I checked. So, um, but after that came to light, um, after the ethics committee announced that there was probable cause to hold an ethics hearing, not into whether he committed a crime, but whether um, the representative acted in a way that was unbecoming, um, then one of his former attorneys released this letter that had been written to the ethics committee, um, I think originally confidentially, um, that included Jane Doe's real name and some details about her life. That information got picked up and, and put onto, you know, like some far right blogs. Um, then those blogs were amplified. Um, Representative Priscilla Giddings um, placed the link and to a to a blog article that included Jane Doe's photo and her name and personal details about her life. She put it on her on her social media page that was seen by, you know, followed by thousands of people. She also sent it out, um, the link out in a letter to constituents. 
Um, and then, of course, Jane Doe had to testify, was called to testify at the hearing. She did so from behind a screen, a fabric screen, to help protect her identity from further release. But as she left, um, some onlookers and then a, a TV reporter um, chased her and, and like tried to film her as she was kind of having this, um, you know, this emotional sort of breakdown from, from the going through the stress of testifying. Um, that's a lot for a person to, to go through. Absolutely. Um, Betsy, I want to bring you back into the conversation. We have about four minutes left. I want to ask you about the lawsuit uh, filed just today, by just Friday, uh, by Reclaim Idaho about the new voter initiative law that Governor Little signed three weeks That's ago. Right. And, and the group Reclaim Idaho, which successfully sponsored the Medicaid expansion initiative in 2018, had promised to sue to overturn um, Senate Bill 1110 as unconstitutional. These are the new limits on qualifying an initiative or referendum for the ballot that essentially make it impossible, um, basically according to the lawsuit. They were joined in filing the lawsuit by the Committee to Protect and Preserve the Idaho Constitution, um, which I did not realize, but a week ago they filed a referendum. And a referendum is kind of like an initiative, but instead of an initiated law by the voters, it overturns or reviews and decides whether to overturn an action of the legislature. And that referendum targets Senate Bill 1110. So they are also a party to the lawsuit. And that's, it doesn't end there. I just found out before I came here that another lawsuit has been filed challenging Senate Bill 1110, also with the Idaho Supreme Court. I am still getting the documents. This one was filed on April 26th. So I don't know on what grounds um, it's being contested in that one, but there are a whole lot of legal challenges being thrown at that new initiative law and and kind of the underlying theme near as I can tell from in all the challenges is that the Idaho Constitution since 1912 has guaranteed the right to initiative and referendum to the people of Idaho and for the legislature to make that impossible to practice violates the Idaho Constitution. Interestingly, the lawsuit has a lot of history. There have been three vetoes over the years going way back by governors of bills from the legislature trying to make it impossible to get initiatives or referenda qualified for the ballot. And by the way, referenda have only 60 days to gather all the signatures after the legislative session adjourns sine die, um, which that makes that a, an amazing hurdle um, to have that many signatures required. And uh, of course this year, who knows, they may never adjourn sine die. So then it won't be an issue, right? <laughs> uh, Rebecca, I wanted to ask you, on Thursday, we learned that the um, state has scheduled an execution for Gerald Pizzuto. Right, so Gerald Pizzuto was convicted, I think in 1986, actually, of, of killing two people um, who were prospecting in Idaho County at a cabin. He was convicted of robbing them and murdering them. He has fought his um, his death penalty on multiple grounds, um, but the state has currently scheduled that for June 2nd. So um, we will see if that goes forward. Obviously the state in the past has had some trouble trying to, or other states have had trouble getting execution drugs. In Idaho, we execute by lethal injection. Um, so they'll have to obtain the drugs. There's a lawsuit going on um, in federal court right now by Pizzuto and another death row inmate who say that, um, you know, that the way the state carries out executions and their policy for it um, potentially makes it hard for them to, to have due process and fight that process in court. 
We have about 30 seconds left, but uh, Gerald Pizzuto is also very ill, terminally ill, which adds another layer to the story. He is. The Marshall Project reported this week that he has been on hospice um, with the Idaho Department of Correction for actually a year. He has diabetes and bladder tumors and a lot of other health conditions that um, mean that he probably doesn't have long to live in his natural lifespan. All right. Lots of news this week. We will keep following all of these stories. Betsy Russell, Idaho Press. Rebecca Boone, Associated Press, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for watching. Be sure to follow along throughout the week on our social media channels and we will see you here next Friday. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.